Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with Booktopian Joe Lewin and authors Bruce Pascoe and Vicky Shakurazu to talk about their book, Loving Country. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thanks. Nice Lovely to be here. here. It's such a beautiful book. Um, I've been flicking through it this morning and it's physically beautiful and the photos are amazing. Was it, uh, tell us a little bit about how this project um, came together in the first place. Um, so about two years ago, uh, we were approached by the publishers to produce this book, but um, the concept was uh, fairly open. So I guess Bruce and I discussed how we would like to proceed and our most important, um, the things that we really wanted to focus on, you know, the key priorities that we wanted to maintain throughout the whole thing. And our ethos, I guess, was the strongest driver. Um, and selected a few places which shifted along the way depending on various circumstances. And from my end, the process basically of the more than the last year has been um, being on the road and going to different communities and having long yarns and um, understanding the country. So spending as much time as I could in a place within the timeframes that were allowed um, and really soaking up a place and photographing, walking, a lot of walking and trips out bush and, um, yeah, I guess trying to show the intimacy of a place and the people and their connection to each other and the place. That's really beautiful. And um, did you do some of the photography, Vicky? Uh, all of the photos are um, the photos that I made, except for one chapter, the Bruning Island chapter. Yeah. And there's one photo in Brewarana by Brad, who's a fella from that country, because um, when I was there, uh, the river was dry, like it, there, there was very little flow. Mm. Um, but he sent me a photo more recently after heavy rain, where you can see the water moving through the traps, mm. which was a beautiful thing, you know, the contrast. Mm. Lovely mm. thing to see, yeah. The photographs are beautiful. Really, really lovely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just try, I guess, to show the spirit of the place, you know, to really, um, I love this country, like it's um, deep in my blood in one way or another, and um, I feel a lot of love for it, and I try and show that in the images. Absolutely, that really comes across. Um, so the theme of the book is um, travelling through sacred Australia. Um, mm. How do you... How do, you and Vicky and Bruce um, decide what goes in and what comes out, like what, what you want to share with um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and international tourists and, and what is not to be shared? That was pretty tricky, but go ahead, Bruce. Um, there were some places we wanted to go to and talk about, um, but it was up to communities um, who... Uh, had uh, already organised some tourist opportunities for people. And so we, um, you know, we'd sorted out the places that we really wanted to go to, try to get a balance uh, between places close to cities 
and in every state uh, as much as we could. And that was how the, the sorting process took place. Um, but there was a lot of our own interest in there as well as uh, people who approached us. And um, for, uh especially for non-Indigenous Australians and um, international tourists visiting um, sites that are sacred to um, First Nation people. What, what's your advice about how to, um, how, to, how to visit these places with sensitivity? With open I, mind uh, and open heart, I think most importantly, you know, is be sensitive and conscious mm -hmm. and um, talk to the local mob whenever you can. Mm. Yeah, it's important to talk to talk to the people, not just barge in, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, was something that we were um, concerned about that it that should take place like that. And um, uh, Vicky's done so much work on the on the photographs um, that that had to be a really um, consensual approach through the community. Um, you know, I didn't take any of the photographs, thank goodness. Uh, but it meant that um, a lot of that work fell on Vicky's shoulders and so much of the community contact was also Vicky's. Mm. So the title of the book is Loving Country, but um, in a lot of ways, the places you're describing have been distinctly unloved or outright ravaged by colonial Australia. Um, what, what, why do you think uh, local and international tourism has neglected these places for so long? I think it's a great opportunity for Australia. Australians will be traveling within Australia over the next two years, um, perhaps longer, um, because there won't be um, much travel internationally. But the the relationship between Australians and Aboriginal Australia has been pretty poor. And here's our opportunity to begin a conversation that can be based on understanding, not assumption. And I think that's really important, but, um, you know, Vicky's opinion would be really good here too. Yeah, I guess um, in terms of the title, you know, A Guide to Sacred Australia, that tagline is, um, for me, the whole place is sacred. You know, it's not just if it's a site of significance because it's all connected. You know, the layers and complexity all feeds into everything. You know, those particular sites with um, known significance um, would not be what they are without everything around them and everything further away. And for me, I think one of the most important things is that when people move through country, whether it's in a city or in remote places, we just have a real consciousness for um, our presence and what it means to the land and the waters. And I think, um, I think we all have that capacity. It's just a question of sort of waking it up and holding it present and really honouring it, you know, that I think, and that goes for everybody, no matter where you're born, no matter your ancestry, no matter who you are, people can neglect all this. It's not necessarily present and strong just because you're from this country. It's something that all humans need to cultivate. 
And I think it's one of those things that is really exciting. You know, because we're human, we have those abilities and those, that great potential and to connect to each other. Absolutely. It's a, and I, I feel like the structure of the book sort of ties into this, what you're expressing in the sense that it's, it's not a normal guidebook. Uh, this isn't something where you look up to find a hotel room in, <laughs> near a sacred site. It's a, it's a, it's a loving description and, and uh, in some cases a political description of the place. Um, I know Bruce in particular, you've, um, you know, you've, you've had to deal with the fallout from Dark Emu and the political stuff. Um, was this part of your purpose in working on this book was to sort of uh, shine some light on these places? For that for that reason oh it, look it was part of our purpose but it most of it was written long before andrew bolt um got involved you know trying to divide australia and australians um so you know that was always our purpose was to bring people together rather than split them apart and the the thing about um Australia right now is that many, many, many young non-Indigenous people want this relationship. My generation didn't. Um, you know, that's a generalisation, of course, because there's many, you know, Australians who tried to uh, make that bridge. Um, but politically, it was impossible. Um, and socially, in many ways, impossible. But these are different days with a different population and a, a different conversation going on. And uh, it's, it's incredibly heartening to talk to young people um, who come to the farm, for instance, looking for information about growing um, Australian Aboriginal foods, that it's a vastly different conversation than I've ever had before with my own generation. And so... It, the timing for the book is excellent, I think, but also it's a, a good, it's an excellent time for Australia. I think the future will be exciting for us. It won't be without hiccups. It won't be without us bruising each other uh, because when you're having a discussion about such deep issues, it's inevitable that there will be misunderstandings and um, there will be some upset, but we have to go through this um, it, unlike uh, Donald Trump's son, this is not a war. Um, it's a conversation and conversations have to have give and take. And that's, we're trying to contribute to that conversation. But as you mentioned in the book with Indigenous Australians being only 3% of Australia's population, that's a, it, it sounds like it's a huge weight on people's shoulders to have to to carry that burden of having to kind of explain themselves to the rest of Australia. Um, well, see, um, my experience for that is completely different because all the oldies that I spoke to um, were so eager, so eager to talk and sit mm. down and go out bush and share time. And they really appreciated being heard. You know, I think um, often, it's the voices that we hear really often that um, might be doing all that talking and might feel mm. like that. Mm -hmm. But all of the oldies, and I spoke to a lot of people, yes. um, 
were incredibly grateful just for me sitting and listening to them. Mm. And to me, that's incredibly valuable. It is an incredible privilege to be able to sit with Mm. someone and listen. Mm. Um, I wasn't talking about Aboriginal people. I was talking about non-Aboriginal Australians who have been reticent in this regard. You know, uh, Aboriginal people have been trying to tell this story for a long time. Mm. That burden of explanation, though, I think it's common to a lot of um, minority groups around yeah. the world at the moment with this sort of more increased awareness of social justice. Yeah. I think it's well worth, no, well don't worth tourists keeping in mind so that they can't just, you know, crash into some site and just expect the Absolutely. local people to explain it to them. Um, yeah. And it's and NAIDOC really- at the moment. And uh, NAIDOC week used to be a time when we'd have a cup of tea on the beach with a few cheese sandwiches and, um, you know, talk about the past. And now it's absolutely full on. I'm in the middle of it now. And every year the intensity of expectation increases. And it's a good thing, but it does weigh heavily on Aboriginal people because everyone's so busy. Uh, you know, once again, trying to meet the expectations and the the desires of non-Aboriginal Australia to embrace these ideas. Uh, it does put a burden on Aboriginal people, but um, it's better than there being no burden. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really true. Um, I, I guess uh, you have now worked on a couple of different books covering these issues, Bruce, um, and and you've now had the opportunity to work with Vicky as well, which must have been really interesting. Um, did you guys, how did you guys work together once you got involved as well, Bruce? Is that... Um... Well, well, I knew about Vicky's uh, filmmaking um, and um, uh, Vicky's films are of a minute details in the landscape um, and they're, they're, they're really beautiful and they show a real understanding of country um then i became aware that ricky could uh, that vicky could also write really well and um so it was an opportunity for an aboriginal and a non-aboriginal person to come at these issues uh differently in different places and so that's um, that's how the collaboration worked how did you find it vicky yes Good. Um, I guess for the most part it was um, an incredibly intense time of non-stop work for me. It was an enormous effort in all sorts of ways Um, and so the emphasis was really inside myself and the connections that I was making for how to proceed um, really tenderly, I guess. And so um, conversations with Bruce, you know, we really tried to make sure that the structure of the book was um, what we wanted it to be, to make sure that, um, you know, it's a big responsibility in some ways to invite people to places or to have that opening. Um, Because with influx of people comes pressure to the country in all sorts of different ways and to a place and to the people. And so we were really conscious of how 
um, how that might play out. And so those conversations and how we were nutting all those little details out were really valuable, you know, for how, um, yeah, how we could proceed. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's a, it's, it, it, it reads really as a very careful book. So I think you have communicated that, <laughs> I, <Yeah>. I hope. <laughs> um, you guys obviously didn't know this pandemic was coming when this project started. <laughs> I imagine it's put pressures on the project in ways that you couldn't have imagined. Is there anything that you would have really liked to do that you couldn't do? Because of no, that? but to be honest, in all sorts of ways, the pandemic, um, it was at the time when I was just in front of the laptop almost all the time doing nothing but, and I was, you know, editing photos and finalising writing. So um, it almost made no difference in that way because I was, and I was in WA, which was a very different thing. We only had the regional closures. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been, I think, in all sorts of ways, I have felt it for other people more than for myself, my family, my friends, and everybody else who's suffered through it. Um, but Bruce, it might, I think, had a very different experience because he was in Victoria. Well, in Victoria, we, um, you know, it was terrible for people in Melbourne, but on the farm, we're right on the New South Wales border. And um, I'm we were still able to harvest our crops and plant new ones. And we had workers coming from New South Wales every day to the farm. And uh, all of us were able to just to continue on as normal. You know, we watched our sanitation and that, but um, it didn't disrupt me very much at all. Um, and during the middle of it, my daughter, um, came down to stay on the farm at, at, um, because they were on holiday, then couldn't go back to Melbourne. So they came to the farm instead. So we had three months together, which is like a really unusual opportunity. Um, but uh, a lot of my writing um, was done early because I had already visited quite a, a lot of those places. So with Burrawarrina, for instance, I'd already been there, I think, three times and had met Brad Steadman on each of those occasions. And he'd showed me the country. So th the writing for that, um, it came reasonably easy. And so it was just a, then a negotiation between Brad and a number of other community members. Um, and some of those community members have different ideas and different focuses and different knowledge. So it was more or less a, a balancing act, but um, uh, Vicky's uh, visits to most places were uh, the first time. And so that was a, a lot harder operation than, uh, than mine. But fortunately for me, um, I had finished most of my uh, first drafts by the time COVID struck. Mind you, I'm... Um, uh, we nearly lost the farm to the fires just before that. But once again, incredibly lucky um, to uh, get away with that fire with so little damage. Um, but yeah, in general terms, um, 
my life was pretty well uninterrupted by uh, COVID, apart from having three grandkids and three dogs charging around the house. <laughs> Which sounds like quite a nice uh, side effect, actually. Well, we were making bread every day, or my daughter was, every second day, rather. Um, and so the people working on the farm were actually able to see the fruit of their labour, if you like. And so morning tea time, we'd be sitting down, tasting, you know, different varieties of bread, you know, working out, um, you know, how, how we might grind the grain later on. And th these are things that, you know, crop up in my stories from time to time in Loving Country, uh, because I, I think this is going to be a really important part of agriculture. And so I was grateful for, um, you know, the human people who work on the farm for providing that uh, extra information and hard work. Uh, so you mentioned in the book, um, you know, coming back to the, the fires, which, you know, we, we heard about in the, in the press, uh, threatened your farm, Bruce. Uh, but you talk about in the, in the book, um, some sites and some sacred trees that were needlessly destroyed. Um, you also talk about, of course, the, um, the Rio Tinto destruction. Um, what can Australians and tourists do to ensure that uh, these sacred sites um, are um, preserved for future generations? Well, we can learn to love them. Um, and that's, we all need to love these trees and to love their stories. Um, and the, the one um, that I'm particularly grieving for is Uncle Max's tree that as a young initiate, he used to sleep in with his grandfather and some of the old uncles. It was big enough for three or four people to lie down inside. And that, didn't, that tree didn't burn down, it was cut down. Mm. And I had been telling national parks about this tree for some time. They agreed that they would preserve it. But during the aftermath of the fire, it was cut down. And I couldn't get to that tree because the road was closed by you know, numbers of other fallen trees. But Uncle Max's tree didn't fall down, it was cut down. Mm. And it was cut down because it was seen to be dangerous. It's you know, 100 metres from the highway. It was never going to impede anyone's progress. And it was an, a kind of, what, was it an act of ignorance or, or did bastardry come into play? I don't know, but we, as a nation, we have to do this stuff better. We have, and to do it better, we have to know the stories. And, um, you know, Vicky's got some sensational stories about these trees because Vicky's got a terrific eye for this and sees them all the time. Um, so Vicky, you would have seen a few more of these in, uh, in the last um, nine or 10 months, I reckon. Yeah, um, I guess some areas <clears throat> have a lot more than others, which has been interesting. Um, yeah, and they're not, I guess they're not commonly spoken about. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit, bit about these trees, Vicky. Uh, so the trees that are often manipulated in different ways um, as signifiers of place or um, direction. And um, 
they some of them are spectacular in terms of how they've been grafted and the refinement of that technique um, and how they their shape really tells another story um, there's an area with quite a number of them that is um, it's like a magical um, it's almost like a surreal place where these trees take on forms that um, are completely unexpected. You know, every single tree has aspects that are, it's almost like they defy gravity in the very way that they can grow. And obviously all trees do in terms of how they can manage to hold these great limbs. Um, but, you know, great circles above the ground or, um, you know, twists and turns that are, um, obviously formed for particular reasons and all the stories within those are unknown or not really spoken about. And so there's, um, until we all start becoming more familiar, I suppose, or honouring these, they run a real risk of being overlooked or, you know, killed, cut down. And so, if, um, and I think... That's it goes for any living thing. It's not just because they're manipulated or not just because they hold particular significance. I think all, all forests, all trees, all parts, all grasslands are important. And I think for me that is one of the things that we really need to pay attention to, um, not just the things that grab our, our eye immediately. Um, you know, Australia has suffered incredible biodiversity loss and um, what is remaining is so often fractured. You know, it's the, they're like little islands where animals can survive, but increasingly less so because the areas are smaller and smaller and disconnected from one another and disease becomes more prevalent. And, you know, I think... This is one of the things that um, the old people really mourn for their country, is that we don't see it as a sacred place altogether. Yeah, that's that's really important, and I hope this book helps helps bring that that some of that to light. That's what we would really hope for. Mm. Yeah, um, I feel like um, there's a sort of pascalification of. Uh, Australian culture that's going on over the last couple of years where um, Bruce you've tackled food and agriculture which obviously you have a long way to go with and and now this book is tackling tourism and I I feel like there's there's more to come um, do you have an idea of what um, what area you want to extend into next or, or have you got enough on your plate <laughs> well I think um, uh, the the story of this country is so strong that it was going to tell itself eventually when it got the opportunity. And um, Vicky and I are just fortunate to be um, in the right place at the right time to tell that story. So um, uh, what, what we need to do is focus on the story um, and, and celebrate the story. Uh, and, yeah, I am working um, all the time at the moment on writing about... Um, an alternative kind of agriculture for this country that doesn't use too much water, that doesn't use fertiliser, doesn't use pesticide. You know, 
instead of throwing up our hands in, um, in grief when all those fish die every summer in our Murray-Darling Basin, we start to think about it positively that all those fish needed was water. And so we don't talk about environmental flows so that the Liberal Party and National Party uh, can scuttle that debate immediately by talking about the economy. We need to bind the economy to the spirit of country and to um, honouring the land. And what people in uh, other countries in Europe and America are, are doing and China to a lesser extent is saying that uh, we can look after the environment and make money at the same time, that these things can be innovation, environmental in innovation and protection can be a business and uh, there can be a profit from it. Now, we shouldn't just be talking about profit and loss, but we should be looking at these things and not falling into the trap um, of just being called a tree hugger. Um, we need to have a strategy for protection as well. And I think the country has that strategy and we just need to honour it. We need to embrace it. We need to stop being swayed um, by foresters, for instance, who uh, at our throats every day so that they can maintain clear felling of forests and exporting uh, wood chips to Japan um, and then we receive it back in, in a, the same boat coming through our Great Barrier Reef as McDonald's food wrappers. You know, that's, that kind of economy in the world has to end and there are alternative economies which can be just as profitable but maybe different people are getting that profit. Um, but business shouldn't be afraid of this environmentalism. Um, you know, it's going to be profitable for business. But, uh, you know, just on the point of clear felling, Vicky and I saw a forest in Victoria, which was an enchanted garden of um, manipulated trees. And in amongst that, those in uh, manipulated trees, there were other trees that had been grown as a forest product and they had been clear felled. The whole spirit of the place had been assaulted uh, by that clear felling operation. And it was like a deliberate snubbing of the nose at this incredible cultural um, area and an insult, you know, the, the pushing down of the birthing trees um, in Victoria, is, example of it. We but need those trees. I think importantly, with that place that you're talking about, that I took you to in Victoria. I think the really important thing about that place is that those trees have been allowed to remain. And although the practice of what's going on around them needs to shift because of the crazy impacts on the soil, which became like the finest powdery dust because of you know changes in its structure which it's only ever going to blow away but i think really importantly is that those re trees remain standing but the problem i guess is how long will they be able to survive with that around them so i think it's that balance that we need to find to say well if we're going to have industry and obviously you know it is a fact we we need to have 
industry in all sorts of different ways. How can we do it better? You know, how can we proceed? How can we apply different technologies that will look after things just a little bit better? And I think we need to honour what, what is allowed to be, you know, what is protected. I think we need to acknowledge that decision that people make to say, well, those trees can remain. I think sometimes, too, you've got to honour the spirit of the place mm. um, and the intention of creating those trees was to make a, an area of serenity. And when you're clear felling, all that serenity is gone. And as you said, Vicky, uh, those huge machines with their massive wheels uh, are compacting the soil around those sacred trees. You know, we just need to uh, use better science and better culture and a better heart. And there's already so much cleared land in Australia. There is, you know, driving across the country, there's so much cleared land. You look at it through Google Earth and it's devastating. So we don't need to actually cut anything more down. And, you know, places like in Germany where they think ahead for many generations and go, well, we're going to plant forests so that they can be harvested. This is a particular purpose and have those cycles that are effective. So I think, you know, as a country, we can, we can use our, um, you know, we're pretty smart. Australia has come up with all sorts of incredible in inventions. Um, a lot of them have had to move overseas because there hasn't been appropriate support. So we can apply ourselves. We just need to, shift our focus just a little bit. And it feels like if, um, if we need to learn a bit of long-termism, uh, we, could, we couldn't do much better than looking at one of the longest surviving cultures exactly. in the world. Yeah. <laughs> How to get to that. Uh, guys, I would love to keep talking about this book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and, but um, we're running out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. It was wonderful. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So uh, if you're interested in reading this book, which I highly recommend you get a copy of, uh, it's Loving Country by uh, Bruce Pascoe and, and Vicky Shukurulu. Um, and you can buy it from booktopia.com.au or from your local bookshop. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au. Thank you.